Have you ever been mistaken for being somebody that you weren't? Uh, several years ago, I was working at the church. We had this was uh, at the church in Pennsylvania. We had some gutters that were being replaced around the church. They were actually doing some roofing as well. And I had gone outside just to kind of hang out with the workers to be able to minister to them. I saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel with those who were volunteering. As I had gone outside, I was dressed like I normally would for work in my Superman costume. And uh, actually, uh, in a, uh, I was wearing just normal khaki pants, but I was wearing a uh, hoodie sweatshirt. It was chilly out, so to stand outside without a sweatshirt or jacket would have been foolish. A neighbor came over, and she saw us standing there, and of course, all of those working on the roof also were dressed similarly, most of them in jeans, but usually with a hoodie sweatshirt or whatever, and this lady began to talk, to tell us, actually to tell me, all about the problems that she was having on her roof. Uh, she had a, uh, the chimney was beginning to separate a little bit, the roof uh, needed to be redone, uh, the gutters needed to be replaced, actually one of them was sagging, and she just began to talk, and she was one of those individuals who when she begins to talk, you may as well just stand there, because she's not going to give you a chance to interrupt, and I wanted so much to be able to stop and say, well, wait, wait a second, I I'm not the one you need to talk to, but she wouldn't stop. And she kept going and she kept going until finally she said, is there anything you can do to help? And I said, well, I can point you to people who can. And then I had her go talk to someone else. And then, of course, then she said, oh, wait, you're the pastor. She hadn't been to the church since I had been there, but she recognized me from being outside. Every one of us has been in one of those positions where individuals have mistaken us for someone that we're not. Or sometimes it's that they've mistaken us as having done something that perhaps we know we didn't do it. Actually, every one of us has had those flashing lights in our rearview mirror at some point. And as we looked back, we thought to ourselves, did I do anything wrong? If you've ever been asked about a rumor that was spread behind your back, if you've ever been found guilty in a court or simply in a conversation when you knew that you were innocent, if you have ever been terminated without a cause from your job, then you have a glimpse of the experience of the passage these first hearers would have felt. We're going to read in just a moment here. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. This was a group of people that would have been looking for a Messiah to come. But as they were looking for their Messiah to come, perhaps they didn't really understand what it meant. I think even for us today, there's a little bit of truth to that. Because at times we think of the Messiah coming, the Christmas story, as nothing more than maybe a, a really cool story for children where they get excited about this story about a baby being born in a manger, which I'm not sure how that's exciting, except that's the Messiah. But what Jesus did in his coming was so much more. Listen to what Isaiah 42 verse 1 through 9 says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. 
In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. As we look in this passage, there is a common theme that is about justice. And today I want to look specifically about how as God revealed through Jesus Christ, he revealed his love in many different ways. But one of the ways he does that is by bringing justice to humanity. As he does so, he also brings them a hope. He tells them of a a time of deliverance, one who will give hope, one who will give peace, one who will set them free. Free from what? Free from the injustice of this world, free from the sin of this world. This passage is all about justice. The Jewish people had been in exile when they received this passage already for about 50 years. Injustice was what they experienced every day. Being in exile, imagine having your own children taken from you. The story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a great example of this. These were Hebrew children that were taken from their families and then basically raised in the Babylonian court. Well, that means mom and dad didn't come. Imagine being mom and dad who you've had your children taken from you. That's an injustice that should never, ever take place. Imagine being Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who had been taken from their family. That's all they ever knew. That was, that was where their comfort zone was. And that was an injustice that occurred. Often when we experience great injustice, anger, bitterness, helplessness, and frustration can develop. All of these things can lead to a desire for vengeance or revenge. And revenge, we are told, is a dish best served cold. In other words, we are to wait to exact revenge. It feels best when done in the proper time, after an appropriate amount of waiting. In fact, the the passage this morning is about waiting. Advent, though, is a different kind of waiting. We're not waiting on revenge, but we are waiting for justice. Paul encouraged the believers in Rome not to seek revenge, but to turn it over to God. Does this mean we ought to not work toward justice? Actually, God still calls us to that. As the passage teaches us, God promised to send one who would bring justice. The prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus While in Advent we wait for his second coming, a coming that will bring final justice, we know that his first coming was a coming for justice. It is not whether we work for justice, but how we do so. In a way that points to his final justice 
and does not slip into revenge. I want to look at five specific points from this passage this morning. I know a good sermon is supposed to have three points, but I think you guys can handle five today. The first one is found in verses one through three, and it is this, loving justice is always a gentle justice as well. The servant promised in Isaiah 42 offers a strange combination of power and vulnerability. The servant will bring justice to the nations, but he does not do so by screaming and shouting, which is almost what we expect. Old Testament professor Julia Classens points out that the contrast that the contrast this servant of justice shows to the nations is incredibly unique. One of the benefits of being gentle in the pursuit of justice is that it can de-escalate a situation. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We need to learn to work for justice while being gentle. Have you ever been in a situation where authority or passion were presented, but without gentleness? Maybe it was in your home. A discussion, because we don't actually argue, a discussion takes place. And what happens is there is a disagreement between a husband and a wife on something, and you want to set things straight. So you very emphatically make sure that your voice is heard. If you've never been there, celebrate the fact that you've never been there. But for most of us in here, we understand that that doesn't usually work the way we would hope that it would work. Because what we've done is we've tried to express our opinion without that gentleness that is required in a home. It doesn't just happen in a home, though. Often it will happen in workplaces. It will happen in just standard relationships with other people. You know, Jesus was one who clearly valued justice, but he also was one who handled justice with incredible gentility. Perhaps the greatest example of this is found in the woman who was caught in adultery. You remember the story? Jesus was teaching, and all of a sudden these gentlemen come to Jesus. They're bringing this woman with them. And as they come, they say, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery. According to the law, she should be stoned to death. What do you say we should do? I'm going to suggest to you from the beginning of this that Jesus, that these men really didn't care about that woman. They brought this question to Jesus to test him. Jesus knew their heart. And Jesus knew the law. In fact, he said over and over again, he did not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law. So if he knew the law and he came to fulfill the law, that means he desires justice. Jesus could have very simply said, you know what, you're right. She deserves to die and had her stoned to death according to the law. Here's the problem with that. In taking that approach, there is only one act of justice, but what he does instead brings justice not only to this woman, but to the other men who were present there as well. Often I've looked at this maybe from the perspective of the woman, but I want you to think for a moment about the perspective of those men. Jesus responds, he says, you're right, that is what the law says. But what we're going to do here is whoever is without sin, 
let him cast the first stone. As soon as he says it, Jesus simply squats down and he begins to draw in the sand. No telling what he drew in the sand. There's no reference to what he said or or what was written in there. I don't know. Maybe he started naming names. Maybe Bob was standing in front of him and Bob had been unfaithful to his wife. And instead of writing the name Bob, he wrote Susan. And Bob immediately realized, you know what, I'm an adulterer too. Who am I to be able to cast this stone? Maybe he wrote another sin. Maybe it was about pride or maybe it was theft and one of them had been guilty of it. We're told that as Jesus sat there on the ground, one by one, each of the men, starting from the oldest to the youngest, dropped their stones and left until finally the only ones that were there were Jesus and this woman who had been caught in adultery. What I want you to realize here is Jesus still wanted justice to take place. But this woman was not the only one who needed justice. By Jesus using that gentle approach, he was able to introduce conviction into the hearts of those men. They too needed to be changed. For far too long, we've been very good at pointing out the sins of other people. We recognize where they have messed up. We recognize their shortcomings And maybe we need to be like those men who, while we want justice for other individuals, maybe we need to stop and look at ourselves and say, God, is there something in me that also needs your justice? You see, Jesus still wanted justice. He offers justice. In fact, he he addresses the woman afterwards. He stands up and, of course, he knows everybody else is gone. He stands up and he says to her, where are your accusers? She said, there are none. They have all left. He said, just as they do not condemn you, I do not either. But listen to this. Now you go and sin no more. It wasn't enough that she could be forgiven, but this was a call to change. The idea, the hope is that those men, when they walked away, they recognized, you know what, I am the most self-righteous of men and I have no place in pointing out the sin of others because at this point I have got so much to deal with right here. It's not to say that we can't ever hold each other accountable. In fact, we'll talk about that in a moment. But understand that that begins with us and allowing the justice of God to work in our own hearts to allow his conviction to come upon us and so that we can recognize his desire to change us. Clearly, he had a combination of justice and gentleness. Can this still happen today in the body of Christ? I think that it should. The second thing that I want you to see today is that loving justice should be a global thing. And what I mean by that, it is not just something that we look for in the local church. Notice the extent of justice that the servant of God will bring. He will bring justice on the earth, even to the islands. Justice that is loving does not draw boundaries around where we will work 
for justice. John Wesley exemplified the desire and openness to bring justice in his attitude that the world was his parish. Wesley considered it his duty to proclaim the gospel wherever he was. And likewise for us, wherever we have been placed by Christ, we are responsible to work for justice there. Now, it would be impossible to address this element without also at least mentioning the recent debate that has taken place regarding the United States' response to Syrian refugees. To some, this is nothing more than a political maneuver. To others, this is a moral dilemma. Over the past two weeks, I've heard some incredibly impassioned arguments on both sides of this equation. In addition, many of those arguments have been issued by individuals much more intelligent than myself. So it's unlikely that I'm going to be able to resolve the issue for you this morning. But let me share one thought about this. The argument is primarily founded on a scriptural principle. It comes from Matthew chapter 25. I want to read just a few verses that are relevant to this discussion. It starts in Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Of course, that passage would go on and there is another judgment that immediately follows. And it is for those who uh, have not been righteous and have not uh, fed the hungry and given water, have not in, uh, invited the stranger in or provided clothing or made the visits to those who were sick or in prison. And Jesus says to them, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Let me suggest first and foremost that we do have an obligation to meet the needs of those in our world. Those who are considered the least of these are desperately in need of our help. But let me also suggest that I'm not sure there are too many people who would disagree with that position, regardless of which side of the debate you may be on. The issue is not whether we should help, but rather, is this the best way to help? Some suggest that we should bring everyone into our own homes. Others suggest that we should be fighting to relocate them. And still others would love to bring them into America, but they do not trust those who will determine which ones will come to America. I would suggest that, although I do not know for sure what the right answer is, doing nothing is also not an acceptable response. We 
have a responsibility to bring justice to the entire world around us. We have people in need, and we must do something to reach them to meet the needs that are there. The third thing that I see in this passage this morning is that loving justice is always grounded in God. We see this actually in verses 5 and 9. We'll look at it now. Perhaps the idea of bringing justice in a global manner seems a little bit big for us. It seems overwhelming. We can't do it. It's too much. Well, look at verses 5 and 9. It says, This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all the springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. It's his. It's God's thing. He says in verse 9, See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. This is God's doing. Loving justice is the work of God. Old Testament scholar Terence Fretheim says, What God will do on behalf of an abused and oppressed people is made a matter of divine purpose, which simply means this. God is concerned with those who are broken and those who are hurting. Sometimes you may feel helpless. How can I make a difference for this individual? I seem so small and the problem seems so big. And the only thing I can tell you is that the problem is not as big as our God, regardless of what the problem may be. The loving justice that God offers is one that brings hope to every single individual, regardless of who they are. What we are called to do is not in our own strength. None of us is called to be the servant, for Jesus is the servant that's referred to at the beginning of this passage. While we work for justice wherever we are planted, we remember that we do so because Jesus is already at work and we are simply his instruments. The fourth thing that we see, and this is one that to me is very important, loving justice is about gathering together. It can be easy to think that justice is something that we do Monday through Saturday, that justice is something we do out there and not in here. But our gathering in worship is already the beginning of justice. Every Sunday is a gathering meant to embody justice, where sins are condemned, but sinners are forgiven, where people from different backgrounds are brought together in unity, every one of us coming to this point from a different path, but recognizing that all of us are made right in him. That is justice. Somewhere along the way, I do wonder if maybe we've lost this element of our gathering together. I wonder if Sunday worship has become nothing more than a time to sing a few familiar or unfamiliar songs and then listen to the preacher. Other than hearing the message preached, which identifies sin as sin, where is the justice in gathering together? Do we still hold each other accountable? Do we still walk alongside each other? Let me suggest that it's found in the family atmosphere that should exist within the church. And when that happens, the church still experiences justice. This was modeled for me this past week in a very uncomfortable way. We were gathered together with some family. Uh, we went to Alabama for Thanksgiving. And as we were gathered together, I will not give you which child's name did this, 
But we were gathered together, and one of my children said to one of the family members, she is a young lady, she's already had two children, said, wow, you've put on a lot of weight. (laughs) And of course, everybody else is just kind of stunned, not really sure exactly if we're allowed to say anything at that point. Uh, The truth is, because of the fact that she's had two children, she has put on some weight, nobody really knows what to say. Finally, the young lady says, you know, only family could say something like that and get away with it. (laughs) And she's exactly right. There are things that often can be said because we are family that maybe if someone else said it, it wouldn't be received very well. When we're truly family, we share with one another all of the joys and all of the the moments of, of great pleasure, but we also are with each other through some of the other more difficult times. Sometimes we have to pick each other up after we've fallen down. Sometimes we have to make people get up after they are laying down. Sometimes we have to say things that sometimes come across a little bit offensive, but they still need to be said as we are a family. Part of being a family is not having to walk that journey alone. And in doing so, you know what we we present? Justice. We help each other to keep from reaching a point of injustice. We actually are made right because we're continually being drawn back to God. That's what the family is supposed to do. Our gathering is not meant to be exclusive. The servant brings a justice that is a light to the nations. And this is where I want to take this gathering together. This idea of gathering together is a time for us to pick each other up, to walk alongside each other, to to be a family. But the reality is, there are other people outside these walls that need that same justice. I heard of a family this week that invited multiple families to come and to celebrate Thanksgiving with them. What they did was they said, this is my family, but I want you also to be a part of my family. And that is what the body of Christ is supposed to be about. It's what this church is supposed to be about. How we treat each other is meant to be a witness, a sign that this community is focused on justice, both for itself and for the community outside. The last thing that I'll look at this morning is loving justice is God's glory. Finally, it is God who is glorified through loving justice. God's display of justice through the servant is what sets him apart from other gods. But he has brought us into this relationship with him, that we can be a part of this. He has told us about justice before he has brought it into reality. We can begin to embrace his justice simply by allowing him to be the Lord of our lives. There's a theologian, his name is Andy Crouch. He says that the connection between idolatry and injustice is very close. Idolatry always leads to injustice. When God's glory is the focus of our lives, we cease perpetuating injustice and we become agents of loving justice instead. Let me suggest, in my words, as opposed to theologian Andy Crouch, at the heart of injustice, we find 
sin. It is far more than our response to injustice toward others. This is also about our perpetuating injustice to other people. Far too many husbands and wives have perpetuated injustice upon their spouse through unfaithfulness. Far too many young people have perpetuated injustice upon their parents and friends driven by addictive behaviors. Far too many seniors, and I'll leave, maybe I'm a senior, maybe I don't even need to expand that. Far too many of us adults have perpetuated injustice upon future generations because of arrogance or self-righteousness. Far too many, it used to be just women, it's just us. Far too many of us have perpetuated injustice through gossip, through complaining. I used to think women were the only ones that did that, but that is absolutely not the case. Point is, there are many, many ways that we have perpetuated injustice on other people. Only Jesus Christ can turn that into something good. Only Jesus Christ can take that injustice and make things right. Only he can redeem those, going back to that original passage this morning, only he can set us free from the injustice that we allow to come upon others. But it requires us getting our eyes fixed on him as opposed to ourselves. This Christmas season is a time for us to anticipate, to look forward to the Christ coming and to, in many ways, look back on his original coming, but maybe to understand a little more about why that original coming took place. He came to make right that which was wrong. Still the same purpose. He desires to make right in us what is wrong simply because we were born of a sinful nature. And he can still do it. I ask you and I challenge you this Christmas season to allow this to be a time for you to truly allow God to examine your heart. Let this Christmas season take on more than that token time of giving where everybody kind of comes together, all the craziness of all the shopping and everything else. Let this Christmas season be more. Let it be a time for you to actually allow God to do something in you so that you'll be changed not just for this month, but for the rest of your life. He came to make things right. Will you allow him to do that in you? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we are honored to be able to celebrate you. We are honored that you came just for us. We are honored that you would come to set us free and to give us a hope. Lord, I pray today for each one as we prepare for this Christmas season that truly we would allow you to take that which is broken and make it whole. To take that which is wrong and make it right. To turn injustice into justice. Lord, I pray that you would redeem us, but that you would also transform us. 
Lord, I pray that you would look at us like you looked at that woman who had been caught in adultery. I pray that you would be able to say to us, neither do I condemn you, but now go and sin no more. Lord, I do pray for your gentleness, but I also pray for your boldness. I pray for us as a church. I pray that you'd help us to be the family that we ought to be. Help us to be people who love one another and are there to encourage and to strengthen and to pick up and to laugh and to celebrate and to do all of the other things that comes along with being a family. But help us to be faithful, to walk along one another on this journey so that never at any point do we feel like we have to give up. but Rather, we are made complete by walking with one another. Lord, I pray today that you would use this season to transform us not just for this month, but for the rest of our lives. Lord, make us right with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I am really excited about the Christmas season, and I hope that you guys are as well. It's not just about giving gifts, although we'll talk about all that in this same series as we work through, uh, but the focus is going to be uh, love revealed over this next month. How has the love of Christ been revealed through his son, Jesus Christ? How is it being revealed to you? Just kind of keep that in mind as we work through this series. I do thank you for being a part of our worship service this morning. I look forward to a great... Uh, actually, let me just mention, next Sunday we have our children's Christmas program. I'm still going to share a message with you, but we also have a children's Christmas program that will be a wonderful blessing. So I encourage you to come and be a part of that as well. Thank you for being with us this morning, and go in peace. <laughs>